In the midst of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Rome wielded self-serving power over Jerusalem. The Jewish population was unlawfully taxed. The ruling council of the Jews was full of power-hungry, murderous men. The religious climate was divisive, with the Pharisees pitted against the Sadducees, the Sadducees against the Herodians, and the Essenes against them all. The people were tired and worn out, sick and demon-possessed. And in the midst of all this darkness, the only light among them was violently put out by cruel, ruthless, and educated thugs. But that light would not stay out. It would be relit to beam again. And that light promises a new day and relief from this crooked generation. So let us shine it so as to change the world forever. Good afternoon to everybody. I'm glad that uh, we are going through our third session here today. Uh, I really enjoyed that panel. It was just so powerful. I'll be going back to Holmes Road in Memphis and using a few of those stories as if I came up with them myself. <laughs> so I'm just so thankful for that. I was also a little intimidated in that uh, these brothers, they, they just said so much in, in, in so little time. Um, and so they have uh, kind of set a, a precedence with that <laughs> that uh, is intimidating to me. Uh, they have to replace my batteries and my microphone, y'all. But, uh, you know, it is what it is, and I'm so glad that you guys stuck around. Luke Acts, that account, is showing the inception of the church. We know that Jesus dies, but he doesn't stay dead. He ascends back up into heaven again, leaving the mission with his apostles. The day of Pentecost comes, where tongues fall down from heaven by means of the Holy Spirit. And Peter, in the midst of this great crowd, this multitude, he breaks from it. And then just like Jesus, turns to it and then saves it. Leading 3,000 other people to break from the crowd too. And so then this last installment is looking at Peter. And we're going to look at Peter and these new disciples, these 3,000 disciples, as they grow so rapidly here toward the end of this chapter. And we'll look at them and use what they do as a template to change the world. And we'll have three key concepts that will help us to do just that. Young people today are not all that different than young people were long ago. Um, especially when it comes to certain things. Now, I grew up and money was real tight. I always said, Daddy, we're poor, aren't we? He said, no, son, we ain't poor. He said, we just got a lot of bills. <laughs> he said this. He was the first person to graduate from college and his family. My mother was very educated and very this and that and beautiful. And he just, he said, no, no, we're not poor. And I looked back, and I said, I, I don't know. I, it sure felt like we were poor. <laughs> you know, when you go into the refrigerator, and uh, there, there really isn't anything there. And it's a subconscious thing where maybe if I go seven more times today, something will magically appear. Never happened. It never magically appeared. Uh, but you would eat as a means of survival and as a sport. I'm from the South, and so eating is a serious ordeal. 
Um, where, where, uh, my grandparents had to explain to me the difference between supper and dinner. You really thought that it was the same. It wasn't. You really, it's just really two dinners. You got a breakfast, you got a lunch, got a dinner, and then a supper. And you don't know how we're eating this much, especially to be so poor. <laughs> and so it was just so interesting whenever Sister Geraldine Lacey, a little petite woman, about this high off the ground, became the youth counselor over our Bible Bowl. Now, this is real serious. I come from Dallas, Texas, and so the church network there is huge. So huge to where the good part is that you have this great mass of people with whom you can build relationships, and you don't have to go into the world. You know, you've got all these people right here. But it's also so huge that I had not even known that there were other types of churches of Christ out there. Of course, when I went to Harding, it was sight unseen. And uh, people looked at me and they said, so you're from the Church of Christ? I said, of course. They said, there are black churches of Christ. <laughs> and what's so strange is I told them, I said, well, until I came here, I didn't know there were white ones. <laughs> I mean... In the Black Church of Christ Network in Dallas, it's about, if you can believe it, I mean, Dallas is, is a metropolitan area of 7 million people. There are like 35 black churches of varying sizes. And so we had uh, softball leagues with the black churches, basketball leagues with the black churches, uh, baseball, you know, softball, baseball, women, men. Uh, Bible Bowl was this huge thing where all the churches came. And each youth group would make T-shirts and you'd come in looking good. You know what I'm saying? Because we don't know if we're really here to study the Bible or just to mack on chicks. You don't know why you're really here. All I know is that we out here right now. I got my friends. We got our matching T-shirts, you know. Until Sister Geraldine Lacey. Because they told us, they said, now listen. Now, we didn't have youth ministers. See, I did not know there was such, such thing. I had first gone to Harding University as an education major because I wanted to teach speech, debate, and all of this. I wasn't going to teach English. But then they kept talking about how I'd have to read all these books. So then I decided not to. I said, I better talk. I know I can talk better than I can read. So then I thought, I'm going to teach speech, debate. It wasn't until I was looking at, you know, a brochure that I saw that Youth ministry was an actual thing that people paid you to do full time. And so in, my, in our churches, we didn't do that from where I'm from. We had a league of people to serve the youth ministry of differing ages, anywhere from 19 to 65 or older. And Sister Lacey was on the older side. <laughs> so then whenever they tell us, I say, well, who over who Bible Bowl this year? And, you know, our church, they, they strict. We had a youth group of probably 30 folks strong, and you always have the, the other ones who don't come as much, but probably about 30 people strong. And uh, the youth conference was what everyone wanted to go to. That was when, you know, it was at a college, and you just have youth from all over the country, you know. And so you'd be planning your outfits months in advance. Like, like oh, my goodness, we're going to uh, Ohio State University. Oh, I got to get my blues and my reds and my yellows together, you know. Everything is about what you're wearing and who you're with and all of this. And so uh, we asked who going, because you all had to participate. If you wanted to go do the fun stuff, like the youth conference, they made you do the other stuff. They was like, hold on, hold on. Who? Because you know around, you know, look, here we go, look. See, you're going to have me up here too long. See, you know what happens. See, see, when you start saying amen, the preacher wound up coming right here to the amens and stand and play. See, this is what happened. See, they said, no, because around July, everybody want to come back to church all of a sudden. All the kids back from their sabbatical being in the world, and now they want to go to the youth conference. Uh, but, but, but our people was like, no, if you don't do Bible Bowl and all the boring stuff to save your soul, you can't do the fun stuff neither. <laughs> they say, you, you getting ready to go uh, to the youth conference looking good and going to hell. 
they said, so no, if you want to do the fun stuff like the youth conference, do all the boring stuff that's going to save your soul too. So we was all like, I want to go to the youth conference. Let me go ahead and do this bottle ball. And they told us, they said, well, Sister Lacey over Bobble Bowl this year. We were like, oh. <laughs> Sister Lacey, Sister Lacey, Sister Lacey. She was a, a, a widow, having had two uh, grown children. And she breathed the Holy Spirit. Later on, when I would return to that same church to, uh, to intern in the summer, we were planning a huge church picnic and it was to rain profusely. And so my upline, they said, B, won't you go and make calls to the church and tell them that we won't be having the church picnic at its usual location at Keast Park, but we're going to bring it back to the church in the basement to have it in the fellowship hall. And so I'm going through the directory calling all these people. And Sister Geraldine Lacey got a hold of this. This is who Geraldine Lacey is. She got a hold of this, and she came up to me in the church foyer while I was using the phone to call through all of the church members here in the directory. And she comes to me, and she says, now why are you calling the church to cancel the picnic? I said, well, Sister Lacey, we're not canceling it. They just want us to move it to the church because it's going to be raining. It's raining. The forecast is supposed to be raining. And she said... Now, why would God rain on this picnic? And I'm thinking, Sister Lacey, bye. Like, I got 400 people to call. Why are you even talking? Well, we just sat there like in the days of Elijah. Rain no rain. And the picnic, which was to start at 12, by 11.15, as the sun shone and shone and shone, we had to go back and call everybody else again <laughs> to tell them, psych, that was a drill. We back at Keith's Park. So then here comes Sister Jerry Lacey again. I told y'all not to be calling nobody. So we said, well, we're going to do Bible Bowl this year. Sister Lacey, okay. We're in big trouble now. Because the Bible Bowl is where all the churches come together. You, you uh, sit in teams, and you take a book of the Bible, and you just memorize it between you and your youth group. You memorize it word for word, and you win based on memorization. And so then they're going to give to you a scripture. It's going to have blanks, and then it's going to be a panel of people, and then they're going to say, the question, and then you have a team captain, and you'll all reach in, and whoever's chapter it was, it's your job to remember that chapter. You were to memorize all of it. So then you whisper it, the team captain stands up, and then they say, the answers, and then you wait. The judges look, and they look, and they say, that is incorrect. Oh! <laughs> or, that is correct. So if, if you just memorize your chapters... I can still remember Mark chapter 2, yeah. after some days in uh, Capernaum and all of this. I can't remember Mark chapter 2. Uh, <laughs> see, the, the Spirit humbled me. I, I can't remember that. But, you know, you, you, you just had to memorize everything. Well, here comes the Lacey. She say, we're just not going to memorize it. Oh, no. We're going to learn this book. So she made us learn the book, y'all. She said, you're going to memorize your chapter, and then you're going to go through Bible classes for the book itself. And that would have been sort of okay if the book wasn't Revelations. <laughs> and we said, Sister Lacey, you don't know nothing about no signs, symbols, and what's the, what's the Revelation? The signs, symbols, candles everywhere. We don't know nothing about this. She's like, I know. <laughs> you will. <laughs> we said, this is hard. Y'all, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Sister Lacey sat us down. She said, this is hard. And so she said, we're not going to get into Revelation right away. We said, okay. A room of us, about 25 of us. She said, now, 
turn with me to Nehemiah. Turn with me to uh, Mark 9, Matthew this and that. And we're thinking, what? And she's reading all these scriptures about people fasting. Y'all, why she make us fast? <laughs> she said, you fast for this reason. This is what comes out of it. This is how you do it. She taught us to fast. She said, won't you drink you some juice if you get weak? And if you got a condition, eat you some nuts. <laughs> and I'm going like, this is the same me who go into the refrigerator seven times hoping something else will be there. And she said, if, if, if you struggle, drink you some juice, but not too much. She said, eat you some nuts. And she said, just, just put you some nuts right here. I mean, we are 15 years old, 16. Put you some nuts right here and just nibble on you some nuts <laughs> if, 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 if you got a condition. And I'm like, one of us in here with type 2 diabetes and we're going to have to fast to be in the Bible Bowl. And if we start struggling, we got to drink juice and eat us some nuts. We did it. Because our parents, our parents was this type. They was all on the same team. You see? They were all on the same team. So then the parents all say, do, do I have to do that? And our parents would say, what you mean? Didn't, didn't Sister Lacey tell you to do it? You say, yeah. What's she say? Well, no, we have to do it. Y'all, we, we fasted. We studied. And we like, we not even good. Y'all, we hadn't, we hadn't placed in the Bible Bowl at the time since 1983. I mean, we, in years and years. We studied that little scripture. We fasted. For months and months and months, we learned the book of Revelation as a bunch of teenagers. We strolled into that church full of all those young people from all over Dallas, Fort Worth. J.R. was our captain, and J.R., he could memorize a book by just reading it once. And it was to the hair. And we had never placed it all. And that year, we got second place of about 20 teams. And you do not understand how that impacted my spiritual life as a teenager. To understand the word and then to be so drastic. Sister Lacey was just so drastic in everything she did. It seems so drastic it was wrong. It's like, that's wrong to be that drastic. <laughs> it just so happened that I still know the book of Revelation and that my life was actually literally changed to so great an extent. And I'm not saying this for any other reason outside to show you the way the Holy Spirit worked, not through me, but through Sister Lacey. I, I went to Harding and people didn't understand, well, how do you know that much? And how do you do that? And blah, blah, blah. And I would say things like, well, that's something we have to pray and fast about. They would say, what's that? And I would think, so when you're in trouble, you don't fast? So you don't go to the Lord and stop eating so he can reveal things to you? And it was so unheard of. But the Holy Spirit moved through Sister Lacey because she was just so drastic. Join me here in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 37 and following. The Bible says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there 
were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter talks about a promise, and the promise, he says, is the Holy Spirit. It's forgiveness. It's salvation. Peter, he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for those who are afar off. He says the recipients, it's going to be for you. The recipients, it's going to be for your children. It's going to be for the, the exiles, the Jewish exiles. It's going to be for the proselytes. It's going to be for the Gentiles. What Peter did was he embodied the Holy Spirit, and then he articulated it to the people to whom he spoke. He embodied it, and then he articulated that. And that is what Sister Geraldine Lacey did. What Sister Lacey did was she embodied the Holy Spirit, and then she articulated that to us. And that leads us to key concept number one. We must articulate to others the promise of God through the Holy Spirit. You have to articulate the promise of God. You cannot always act it out. People say, well, no, won't you just show people in, in love? That's true. You, you know, you act out the gospel. St. Francis of Assisi, won't you preach and then use words if necessary? That's true. But we have to also understand that there are things that happen in our life. There are challenges that we have. When you are teaching people who are immature, sometimes they don't pick up on the pantomime especially in a pluralistic world today. They're not picking up on the fact that that's from God, not always. So then we need to actually use our mouth and articulate it. Sister Lacey would say, no, we're going to learn this book so that you may be stronger. We're going to fast so that you may understand a deeper revelation from God. She would explain it. She would walk us through it, and she would act it out. Key concept number one, we have to actually articulate faith. We have to articulate it through the Holy Spirit. We have to say God has given us a promise, and we have to articulate it with our mouths. That's what Peter did. He just did not stay there. You try to ask Peter to not use words in Acts 2. Peter says, no, I've got to use words. These people are confused, they're perplexed, something has happened that has never happened before. I've got to articulate it. When we are up against all of the things in this world, we just can't act it out. We have to be brave enough to tell our co-workers. We have to be brave enough to sit down with our moms and our dads and our, 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 our fellow Christians, and we have to articulate it. We have to be brave enough to actually say, this is what the promise is, and we have to speak on it, and we have to learn how to articulate it. Realizations have to be made. Sacrifices have to be made. Some decisions have to be made. Some commitments have to be made. But we have to do all that so that we can actually open our mouths and talk about it, actually articulate what the promise of God is. In the midst of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Rome wielded self-serving power over Jerusalem. The Jewish population was unlawfully taxed. The ruling council of the Jews was full of power-hungry, murderous men. The religious climate was divisive with the Pharisees pitted against the Sadducees, the Sadducees against the Herodians, and the Essenes against them all. The people were tired and worn out, sick and demon-possessed. And in the midst of all this darkness, the only light among them was violently put out by cruel, ruthless, educated thugs. But that light would not stay out. It would be relit to beam again. And that light promises a new day and relief from this crooked generation. So let us shine it so that we can change the world forever. I cannot understand why you would use sex to sell cat food. This is the world we're living in, where everything is sold with sex. Tidy cat commercials for litter and cat food. How can cat food be sexual? What about Drano? <laughs> Have you seen the Drano commercials with the hot stud coming in the door like, I'm here to unclog your drains? <laughs> this is weird and very, very unnecessary. Back in 2014, when the new Lexus F was released, Lexus is trying to bring in younger customers because most people who drive Lexuses are normally established in their careers. You're not going to find a 22-year-old 
thinking, I can't wait to get into my Lexus. Not normally. There are other cool cars that 22-year-olds want to drive. Lexus apparently wanting to get into the 22-year-old market. They are making Lexuses more young, okay? Some, some hatchback Lexuses for the millennials who want to spend that money. All right. This commercial, a Lexus is driving. It's like a very dark color. The commercial is very dark. And then the, these are words popping up on the screen. Lust as the Lexus drives by, pride as the Lexus drives by, lights in the evening time in an urban environment, the next word that pops up, envy as the Lexus drives by. I just don't understand how these types of things are used to sell products and people actually subconsciously look at the commercial and say, now that I know that driving a Lexus is lustful in some way or will make other people envious of me, all of a sudden, I want to own a Lexus. That actually happens subconsciously. I don't think there's anything wrong with owning a Lexus. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a nice thing or two. But I'm saying when people actually buy it, because it will make other people envious, which happens. We're actually selling it because it's going to make other people hate you for having something they don't have. And that's just a warm and fuzzy feeling to Americans. It begs a question, why are we the way that we are? There's an irony here of reversal. The irony of reversal is all around our society, even in the very root of it. There's this reversal. It really starts with secularism. Secularism is this systematic approach to make everything devoid of God. Secularism is the separation of everything. Paul spoke against secularism. He didn't call it that, but when he talked to the church at Corinth in chapter 3 and then again in chapter 6, they were having... Uh, sex with prostitutes, and they said, using platonic dualism, a very ancient school of thought, that I can do something with my body that's separate from God. But then Paul says, no, don't you know that your body is actually the, he, is actually, excuse me, the naos, the inner room of the temple where the very presence of God dwells. So then if you do something with your body, you can't separate your body from your mind. See, they were trying to separate their bodies from their minds. That really is secularism. Everything is separate. So then you have someone in the government who's over education, someone who's over health because the two are not related. You have someone who's a doctor over your foot and then someone who's a doctor over your back because the two are not related. Of course, in Eastern society, it's not much like this. In Eastern society, they treat the whole body that's why in Eastern society, they are so hostile toward the West because we are very secular and they don't like secularism. They say, no, if you want to treat cancer, one thing you can do is eat better on the front end. And so now in medicine, we're trying to adopt some of these more Eastern ways of doing things because secularism divides everything. Our education system is secularized. Everything is in specific subjects. Everything is split up by grades, and today what educators are saying is, I don't know how helpful this is, because after you get all this education, young people still don't know much. And so first comes secularism, the idea that everything must be separate. After secularism comes pluralism. These are key points in our society. Comes pluralism, which is to say everyone is valid and everyone is right that the Muslim can sit next to him who worships in the Baha'i faith, and the Baha'i can worship right here next to the Buddhist, and the Buddhist next to the Hindu, and then the Hindu next to the Christian, and the Christian next to uh, the nation of Islam, and we can all just be here together. And so now it goes from secularism to pluralism. And so it's, a, it's actually a formula that when you add secularism, the idea that everything must be separate, to pluralism, the idea that everybody has a point and everyone is right, then the equation ends with privatization. The idea that now everything has to be private, especially religion. You name one religion in the world that's private. If you go anywhere in the Middle East, the Buddhists, the Hindus, in India, you just walk down the street, 
smoke everywhere, incense burning, priest in the corner. Every religion is meant, spirituality is meant to be public because it's communal. The very idea of it is public. But you see, whenever it becomes secular and then uh, plural, then it has to be private. Because if you are not private with your religion, then you are going up against pluralism. And you're going up against secularism. Because religion, especially Christianity, says there is nothing separate, secularism, and then it says everybody can't be right because there's only one way, pluralism. So then you have to keep your religion, your faith, your spirituality in private. But the great reversal in our society, and I want you to look into Robbie Zacharias, he talks a lot about this. The great reversal in our society is the fact that the very thing that's supposed to be public, like religion and spirituality, is forced to be private. You can love God, but you got to do that where? In your house. The very thing that's supposed to be public has now been forced to be private. And other things that are supposed to be private are now public. Can you imagine when you're selling cat food by a woman half-dressed and draped over the can? (laughs) Do you see, sex is a beautiful thing that God created for man and woman. A level of intimacy that's to be cherished and celebrated. Hormones are holy, not unholy. How is it though that things meant to be public are now forced into the closet and things meant to be done in private so as to keep their reverence, it's pushed forward into the public. We live in an ironic society of reversals. Everything is upside down. Everything is turned inside out. And the more inside out and upside down it is, the more right secularism says it is, the more right pluralism says it is. Everything is all topsy-turvy. Up is down, down is up. Right is left, left is right. Everything is in reverse. Join me here, reading again just these last couple of verses, 40 and 41 of the book of Acts, chapter 2. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Key concept number two. We must encourage others to respond to God. The first thing we need to do is we need to articulate the promise. What is the promise of God? Sometimes we just assume people know the promise. People don't know the promise. We just assume, well, salvation, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit. People don't know that. People don't know that the promise of God is the Holy Spirit. And we preach from the book of Acts only on baptism. But really, Acts 2 deals with the Holy Spirit from, from that first verse all the way down to 40 something. It's then with the Holy Spirit. That is the promise. When Peter quotes Joel and David, he's saying, yes, Joel said there was going to be an outpouring of the Spirit, that God promised the Spirit just like this, just like it's happening now. And so what he's saying is we have to articulate this to people like Peter did. But after we articulate it, we have to encourage people. Now that you know what it is, save yourself. You have to save yourself. And I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm in Levi Strauss over at the outlet trying to give me some Levi's. I'm talking to this one brother, and he say, are you a preacher? I say, yeah, I'm a preacher. And I gave him my address, and it's interesting because I live on a street called Mary Jane. <laughs> and, 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 and I tell people, I say, listen, I have a confession. I'm a preacher, but I live on Mary Jane. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do without it, right? And some of y'all don't get that because you're holy. All y'all laughing, been in the streets, you're not living right. 
and he said, well, yeah, man, I've, I've, I've been needing the church, and I've been knowing I need to go, and blah, blah, blah. The first thing I ask him is, I say, well, how are you staying encouraged? Then I said, well, how are you staying safe? Because I told him, I said, what about all these things happening in the world? You look on the news, everybody dying, everybody getting killed. This is Memphis, y'all. All of this upheaval. I said, so what are you doing to stay safe? That's my question. That's my point of evangelism. Like, okay, so what are you doing to save yourself? Everything is falling to pieces in the world. And secularism would lead you to believe that we are in this constant progression upward. Same old, same old. I don't believe that. So then I ask people, how are you staying safe? Safe from what? Safe from what? What about when you get cancer? What about when your mom dies? What, like, like, what about all these things right now that you're struggling with? I can look at you. I'm, I'm looking at this fellow. I'm like, I can look at you, and I know you're struggling. I, you, it's written all over your face. It's written all over who you are, over, over your incessant need to make jokes so as to not really face the truth that you're unhappy, and I can see it here, and I only have known you for 30 seconds over some jeans. I'm asking you, so what's your thing? How, how like, like, you need to save yourself. That's what Peter did. Peter said, you guys don't get it. This generation that we're living in is crooked. It is not straight. You need to save yourselves. Like, this whole thing is going up in flames. This is the Titanic, the biggest, strongest, quote, unsinkable ship. And here it is, going under. And we're just walking around the sinking ship, stepping over puddles, not recognizing that one day we'll be completely submerged underneath water and the ship, unable to swim out. So we have to, key concept number two, encourage people to respond. You need to save yourself. In the midst of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Rome willed itself serving power over Jerusalem. The Jewish population was unlawfully taxed. The ruling council of the Jews was full of power-hungry and murderous men. The religious climate was divisive with Pharisees pitted against Sadducees and Sadducees against the Herodians and the Essenes against them all. The people were tired and worn out, sick and demon-possessed. And in the midst of all this darkness, the only light among them was violently put out by cruel, ruthless, and educated thugs. But that light would not stay out, and it would be relit to beam again. And that light promises a new day and relief from this crooked generation. So let us shine it so as to change the world forever. I went to college, and when I went to college, I saw some powerful things. People said Harding University is a bubble. I was like, thank goodness. Because I wasn't like everybody else, where, you know, you, you, know, you didn't want a bubble and you wanted to live life. I mean, I went to schools through metal detectors. We had to walk through metal detectors every day so people wouldn't bring guns and knives into the school. We had to wear mesh backpacks. It looked like an airport getting into school every day. It looked like TSA to get into my school. In my school, there were 4,500 students. 4, 000, my, my graduating class was 900 people, and I was an S. <laughs> so I was looking for a bubble. People were like, oh, it's a bubble there. You're not going to get into the real world. I was like, thank goodness. <laughs> I've been in the real world where you're just trying to eat your lunch, and you hear somebody nose crack and blood everywhere. You're like, I'm just trying to eat, and y'all fighting. <laughs> like, like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm out here with chicken sticks and mashed potatoes, and y'all fighting. See? So I wanted a bubble. I wanted somewhere where Christianity was for real, even if for four or five years. Okay, that was me. I get to Harding, and I meet a woman named Donna Welch. She was a widow. Lost her husband. She was a mother of three sons. At 19, she lost her oldest son. She had adopted her third son, and he went off into the world never to speak to her again. The woman was so strong in faith, she had been praying that this lovely home that she had that was empty could be full again. She had had all types of ministries in the church, and she just prayed for her son to come home. The Lord answered her prayers not by sending her son home, but by sending us. A group of about 13 men went into her home and started having a Bible study. And the group grew from 13 to about 60. She had become a mother to all these other sons. 
It was something about that time. There was no experience at Harding that affected me more. I had uh, become privileged to become one of the leaders of that devotional. And so on Monday nights, the leaders would get together and pray. And Miss Donna, who was in her mid-60s at the time, would cook for us. And she'd set the table, we would eat. And I grew up, and I don't know what y'all do here because I'm, 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 still, I'm, I'm only a two-day resident. In, but I know we got some transplants. How many of us have tasted poppy seed chicken? Do y'all make that here? See, I never tasted poppy seed chicken, ever, in my life. It wasn't something that, 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 that was in my grandmother's or mother's repertoire. So it wasn't until I went to Miss Donna, and I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> this sermon is turning out to be more about food than I anticipated. <laughs> and uh, it was just so good. She'd cook for us. And we'd pray, and we would get the Devo together. There was on Wednesday. We would start Monday by praying and eating. And then we'd get there to her house early, and she'd be getting the cookies and milk. And we would stand in the doorway, and you could just see during those early days when it grew so fast from 13 to 60, the cars pull in. It started at 7 o'clock, and around 6.45, you see one car, two cars, four cars, five cars, just cars all the way down the street. And these brothers, 18, 19, 20, 22-year-olds getting out, walking up the street, and they all came in like a flood. They were coming from every direction. We had this thing to where we wanted to be leaders, and so then there were three main leaders who met on Mondays, but then we split the group up even further to make group leaders, where we would split up and do uh, classes, and brothers were getting baptized, and it was this whole thing. It was my first real experience in ministry outside of my home congregation. And we had all these ideas, but Ms. Donna was always so quiet, but so influential, just standing over us as we ate with her hand on the chair, back and forth in the kitchen to wash dishes, and she'd just come in and she'd say, just a, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> you know spiritual women, spiritual women don't have to be, now look, now sometimes we men need that. We, we need a woman to, to take us by the collar. But Miss Donna, I have a question for y'all. It wasn't until it was over until I realized she's leading this devil. <laughs> We never knew it, though, because she empowered us. She prayed for us. She cooked for us. She empowered us. I'm just thinking years later, I'm like, there's no way that, that, that boys, I mean, 19, 20-year-olds, there's no way that boys could have done a work like that without her. It actually turned out to be a formula. In the devotional, we said, we need to get for real, you guys. Okay, so we started confessing our sins because, you know, that's real. You know, we do confessions when people get baptized, and we say, okay, um, I'm going to take your confession. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes or no? I do. Now, I baptize you in the name. My friend, Moses, who is a minister and grew up in Botswana, he says, that ain't, how, that ain't confession where we come from. He said, when a person comes into our church in Botswana, which is in southern Africa, he says, when they take the confession, it's an actual confession. He says, they confess their actual sins, not just that Jesus is the Christ, but when they repent and confess, they come and they bring their witch books. They say, these are the witch books that I've been using for 20 years. They confess it. They say, I've, I've, I've cast hex on these people. That, he said, it's an actual confession. And so then in that Devo, what we said was we need to start confessing because we, we, we read James 5. I mean, when you confess your sins, you receive healing. See, we just want forgiveness. The Bible says if you confess your sins to Jesus, he will forgive you. But it's really a confession to others that you're healed. And we ain't healed because we ain't confessing. At any rate, we were confessing. Brothers were getting baptized. Brothers were talking openly. And then we were eating. And we would sing the roof off that place. It was a loud singing, too. Like, like look at all these brothers lean singing. Just imagine 60 of them. It wasn't as pretty, I, I will say that. <laughs> but some of our first tenors did their best. I'll be there for me when I go. You know, they, they tried to get up there. And we just praised God. It felt so good, we didn't even know how bad we sounded. Because the spirit moved, it made us sound good. 
And that happened to be a formula. Let's confess, let's be open, let's encourage one another, let's hold each other accountable, let's eat, let's sing, and let's play. We used to go over to Ms. Donna's house and just have lock-ins just because. We started having this all-night prayer. The Devo leaders, we would fast. Thank you, Sister Lacey. They said fast. I said, yeah, we need to fast. We can't be leading these people and not fasting. And that became so much a part of my psyche. Whenever I went to other churches, I stumbled upon that. So then when our young adult ministry at Holmes Road grew from like five people to 22 people really, really strong over the course of just three years, people thought that it was me when they did not understand it was Miss Donna. It was Miss Donna. She helped us to see what this formula would be to cause spiritual growth. And so I've mimicked that at other ministries and churches. And I'm privileged enough for people to look at me and say, great job, be Chris. And the whole time, I'm just thanking God for Miss Donna Welch. Join me here in Acts chapter 42, excuse me, chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Key concept number three, we must embody to others devotion to God. To be devoted to God is to be devoted to each other. To be devoted to God is to love and to cherish and to give everything to others. And that's what we learned there in Miss Donna's house. We learned something. And we all went back to different places and just mimicked it. I had another friend who was a youth minister. He mimicked the same thing at his church in Arkansas and grew that youth group from 15 to 50 kids. It's just this simple thing that changes us. I was having some conversations with y'all. I'm, 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 I just love being here so much, you don't understand. One reason I'm going on and on is because I feel at home and I like you. I just can't stop talking. I'm having all these conversations. I feel like I'm talking to you right now. I was having a conversation just before we ate lunch. And, and my brother, he said, well, how can we do some of these things? You know, what's the next step? Like with the homosexual problem and with the race thing, what's the next step? Really, just talk about it and then be open to the leadership of the Spirit. Be willing to do these things right here, to get together, to pray, to fellowship. And then... It all kind of falls into place seemingly on accident, completely on God's purpose. The reality is, I don't know how it happens. And I, I, I'm in graduate school studying for the Masters of Divinity, and I read a whole bunch of books. And a lot of them are good, and I do a lot of things in it. But it still does not trump this mysterious way that God grows people and grows his church. It's mysterious. I, I, I can't put it together quite. But it's just these small things that we do. And when we do those things, it's really irresistible. We say, well, how are we going to reach gay people? I don't, I don't know them many gay people. Well, I told another sister, I, another sister, I said, well, the first thing you can do is don't worry about reaching all the gay people in Minneapolis. Them a lot of gay people. <laughs> I said, no, first thing, we need to work in-house. Because the nation of Israel was told time and time again by God, the nation, uh, God told the nation, he said, I'm trying to help you be right because you were supposed to be a light to the other nations. God never told them that that was going to be hard. Give me one scripture in the Bible where God said, it's going to be hard drawing the nations to you. He never said that. He said, if you just do what I say, it's going to be irresistible to the nations. You see, like I'm telling you, the love and the power of God is just irresistible. And so when we do it like this, People are literally drawn to us even if they don't want to be. They just find their feet flocking. It just, it's, it's how it is. Like the love and the grace of God is just too irresistible. It's hard to resist. You have to work hard to resist the love of God.
So if we just do that, well, I don't know how I'm going to reach gay people. All these gay people in the world, don't worry about the gay people in the world. Where about the gay people here in this place with y'all? Where about the gay people who can't say it because they go to church? So I go to church and I've been uh, struggling with homosexuality my whole life, same-sex attraction my whole life, and I can never tell anybody except your own. And then other people will say, you go to church? I do. And they know. They all know, all of them. And you go to church. That's right. What church? The Church of Christ. How often would that be? Well, the Church of Christ, they always talk about that hard stuff, and they just love each other and keep on going. That's how you start to draw people irresistibly. And so I just hope this for you. I hope this for my church. I hope this for everyone. I hope that we can embody devotion to others. Key concept number one, we must articulate, uh, we must articulate to others the promise of God. Key concept number two, like Peter, we must encourage others to respond to God. And then key concept number three, we must embody to others devotion to God, which ultimately is devotion to each other. Here in this world, we have a spiritually non-compliant government. That's what I say. That's how I word it. A spiritually non-compliant government. Democrat, Republican, Tea Party, no party. It's a spiritually non-compliant. When they're making decisions, it's not because God is going to be glorified. They're not trying to literally glorify God. We have conflicting religious views, financial and social upheaval, wounded people of every type. But the light that we have in Christ is the very thing that we've been talking about sending out when we sing. And it's that light that will draw them to us, that is the mark of a disciple. In the midst of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Rome wielded self-serving power over Jerusalem. The Jewish population was unlawfully taxed. The ruling council of the Jews was full of power-hungry, murderous men. The religious climate was divisive with the Pharisees pitted against the Sadducees, the Sadducees against the Herodians, and the Essenes against them all. The people were tired and worn out, sick and demon-possessed. And in the midst of all this darkness, the only light among them was violently put out by cruel, ruthless, and educated thugs. But that light would not stay out. It would be relit to beam again. And that light promises a new day and relief from this crooked generation. So let us shine it so as to change the world forever.